Hello and welcome to the Tofugu Podcast. My name is Michael, and today I have as a guest Matt Alt, translator extraordinaire. Hello, Matt. Hi there. How's it going? And uh, Matt is a translator of uh, video games, of books, of manga, of all kinds of different things from Japanese to English. Um, and Matt, uh, why don't you uh, let people know about you and yourself? Sure. I mean, I've been interested in Japanese uh, culture and pop culture ever since I've been a kid. And uh, in the early 2000s, uh, together with my wife, Hiroko Yoda, we founded a localization company called Alt Japan. We're based here in Tokyo. And just like you say, we specialize in uh, entertainment, mainly video games, but also manga and uh, uh, books, all sorts of things. Uh, and on the side, I also have been doing a lot of writing for various uh, media outlets and stuff. Recently, I just did a piece on the anime Your Name for the New Yorker. Yeah, so I saw that. Uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And so we're keeping busy out here. That's cool. And I know uh, so some of the games that people might have heard that you've done. You did the Ninja Gaiden series. Yes. Uh, you did Dynasty, Dynasty Warriors Gundam. Yes. You did Dragon Quest Eight. Yes, and um, seven. Oh, and seven. Yes, we worked on seven different company, but yes. Our uh, our sound engineer Jamal is a big big fan of eight, and uh, he actually wanted me to ask you if there's a pun quota for, like a number of puns you have to hit in a Dragon Quest game. <laughs> well, you know, we were when we were working on that game, we were working the 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 uh, LD as it's called, the localization director, is a yeah. gentleman named Richard Honeywood, and he is notorious in a good way for his love of puns, and so they were just shoehorned in there. Every which way they could be. That was a lot of uh, fun to work on. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, I know that as um, as Dragon Quest fans go, they, they really appreciate it. Yeah, that, that was a real uh, uh, honor to be able to work on that because, as uh, you might know, Dragon Quest is a really storied sort of franchise here in Japan. It's kind of like the Star Wars of, of uh, role-playing games as far back as the Famicom uh, original Nintendo era when kids would, like, cut school and line up to get the newest versions of the game yeah so it's it's like a societal phenomenon here in japan it was really cool to work on that yeah i remember uh, growing up when i was really interested in video games that was like one of the legends uh yeah was like, oh in japan people cut school and there's like record yeah low attendance when a dragon quest game <laughs> comes out yeah well they the, the 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 rumor is that they shifted releases to weekends so that that wouldn't happen anymore i don't i don't know how much of that is like urban legend and how much of that is actually true but it is a fact that the dragon uh, quest series was just an absolute societal phenomenon here and we were really impressed when eight came out and so many you know it's just a different demographic from your usual games it wasn't like all teenagers and and young men you'd have like middle-aged women and housewives and you know, older people, all sort and kids, all sorts of people playing the game. So it was really cool. Yeah, that's really awesome. Um, and you've also done manga, uh, right? I know you did the Doraemon localization. Yeah, yeah. Doraemon was our was huge. That was uh, we actually spoke to uh, Tofugu about that. Uh, there's an article on your site about that that we did about a year and a half or so ago. That yeah. was about two years ago. That we did that, and and our company, uh, you know, my company was hired to translate all. 15,000 pages of it. I mean, it's a huge amount of wow. work. Uh, had to all be done in a, in a fixed period of time, and we pulled together a team, and we got it done. But that was an amazing... I mean, if you want to talk about a societal phenomenon, it doesn't get much bigger than Doraemon. Yeah. I mean, it's like the peanuts of Japan. Like, you know, you'll hear politicians making references to anywhere doors or, you know, uh, you know Doraemon's gadgets 
in their speeches and things like that. It's just that much a part of the fabric of life here. Yeah. It, is it is it fair to say that Doraemon's like the Mickey Mouse of Japan? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Doraemon actually uh, uh, went beyond. It's now the biggest, single biggest character franchise in Japan. It's even bigger than Godzilla. Wow. Uh, and I don't mean that as a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is a, in like a actual sales. Uh, it surpassed Godzilla, I think, about a year ago now. That was a big news here in Japan. So it's it's major. I mean, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody in Japan who doesn't know Doraemon. Right. Yeah. And, and that's why I was glad when uh, when we did that interview and to find out that, yes, Doraemon's finally coming to English speaking yes. audiences. Yes, we're really happy about it, too. I mean, it's it's I think you can honestly say that you can't understand Japanese manga culture and anime culture without having read Doraemon. It's just like it's that fundamental. Right. Yeah of a part of the culture here. But you know, it's at the same time we were doing that and ongoing now we're translating a manga series called Doro Hedoro for Viz, which is this incredibly bloody, violent, uh, grotesque, uh, you know, manga series set in this uh, post-apocalyptic magical fantasy world. And so it'd be really funny, you know, like one minute you're translating, you know, Doraemon and friends in this, you know, playing a game in some kid's bedroom and the next it's like, some dude in a mask that looks like it's a heart ripped out of somebody's chest, like stabbing somebody to death. So it's, you know, Andoro Hedro. So it's just funny how, you know, when you work in this industry, you just kind of whiplash between different types of content, you know, kid stuff, adult stuff, you know, academic, popular, and just, you know, rolling with those punches is part of the project, part of, part of the job. That sounds like a lot of fun. I actually just was looking up Doro Hedoro because I'm not familiar with it, but the art looks really cool. Oh, it's an amazing comic. I actually, uh, I think that it's it's a travesty that it hasn't been turned into an anime yet. I think it would do really well. Wow. It's uh, it's really cool. It's it's uh, uh, it's the 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 mangaka, the the artist is a and, and writer is a woman, uh, Hayashi Daku, and I don't because she's a woman or just because of her personal tastes. It's this. It should be really grotesque and horrendous, but it actually has this kind of sweetness to it. It's almost like, you know, if the world ended and Hello Kitty was the only one left. You know what I mean? It would yeah. be like this kind of, it's like dark and kind of like sweet at the same time. And that's a really, really tough spot to hit. And I don't know. I just I just think it's really an awesome, awesome comic. It's you know, and it's I should say, you know, when you're a professional and you're working as a localizer you don't always work on the projects you want to work on, you know, or projects that you have a connection to, like, you know, you work on what the clients come to you and say, we need this translated, um, you know, and we're happy to do it and we always give it our best, but it's really cool when you get to work on a project that you do think is cool, that you do think has a lot of, uh, a potential or a lot of, uh, awesome aspects to it. And Doro Hedero is one of those. That's really neat. Is, and th is that out now or is that something you're still working on? Oh, yeah. No, no. That's been that's been coming out from Viz uh, for okay. years now. I mean, I think it, they started coming out about five or so years ago, and I think they're up to volume, I don't know, 17, 18 now. Oh, wow. So everyone go yeah. go out and buy all 17 volumes of Photo yeah, exactly. <laughs> a giant A giant stack of comics. Get reading. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess the, the main thing I wanted to talk about with you today, though I do like to talk Doraemon all day long because I love Doraemon. Sure. Um, is your newest book or one of your newest, since you come out with lots of books all the time, called Japandemonium Illustrated, um, which is just a massive book. And yes. uh, could you tell us a little bit about that book and let people know what it is? Yeah, Japandemonium Illustrated, the Yokai Encyclopedias of Toriyama Sekien. Um, 
before I explain what this is, uh, I think for people who might not be familiar, we should probably talk about what the concept of yokai are. Um, I'm sure some of your listeners, a lot of them will know what they are, but they're monsters from traditional folklore, uh, traditional Japanese folklore. Uh, things like kappa, you know, the water goblins that live in, you know, murky rivers and ponds and pull swimmers down, or tengu, you know, these, you might have seen those giant red masks with big noses on display in Japanese restaurants and things like that, or tanuki, those large testicled <laughs> raccoon dog statues that are often seen outside of uh, Japanese uh, uh, businesses and, and uh, restaurants and stuff. They're all these kind of shape-shifting creatures from Japanese folklore that have played a huge part in Japanese culture since times of old. And one of the reasons that there's a lot of attention uh, paid to yokai, even in the modern era, is that they're very visual. There's a lot of illustrations of them. There's a lot of uh, not only just stories about them, but there's traditional uh, visuals for how each one looks. So you have this huge menagerie of monsters from Japanese folklore, almost like uh, uh, you know a Pokemon from from hundreds or thousands of years ago. Now, the, the way that Japanese people visualize yokai today, whether you're looking at them in a manga or, or an anime uh, or, or wherever you're seeing them, all of those visual representations can be pretty much traced back to a series of four books that were published uh, two and a half centuries ago by an artist named Toriyama Sekian. And uh, his books, uh, which are the first of which was titled The Illustrated Demon's Night Parade, Gazu Hyaki Yagyo, kind of formed the basis for all sorts of uh, yokai culture in Japan. Now, they take the form of basically primitive, I don't want to say primitive, that's a bad way of saying it, but early manga. They're illustrated pages with text written around them. They're not narrative. They're uh, more like encyclopedias, but uh, they have an illustration of a yokai and text at least naming it, but often going into some extended explanation of what they are. And these books, as influential as they are, had never, ever been translated into English before. And uh, Hiroko and I uh, have a huge interest in yokai. Uh, we published books on the subject before, and it just killed us that this wasn't available, you know? And so we decided to pitch the concept of translating all four of Sekien's books to a publisher, and uh, they picked it up, and uh, the result, cutting a lot out of the middle there, is... Pandemonium Illustrated, the Yokai Encyclopedias of Toriyama Sekien, which are now finally available in English for the first time in 240 years. Wow, that's pretty awesome. I, I have a copy of the book right here, um, and I've been looking through it for, for the past week. And it's it's pretty, pretty in-depth. Like, not only do you have the translations, which is great, but you've got, like, tons of annotations under each, uh, I guess, character or monster or yes. whatever you want to call them. Yokai, that's the th you know, it's... The, the, we, re we quickly realized when we were working on it that, you know, it, the, the books are often mischaracterized as demonology mm -hmm. in the West, you know, by people who just look at it and they're like, oh, the demon's night parade. Oh, wow. Monsters, you know, but it's not about conjuring up creatures. It's not about surviving, you know, uh, interactions with them. The book is basically a literary parody. It's uh, a parody of a style of literature that was extremely popular at that point in Edo, which are encyclopedias. There was a huge boom for encyclopedias in uh, in Japan at the time. And there were all sorts of encyclopedias for all sorts of things. There were like these herbals that showed you how to use, you know, different plants for medical or, or you know, food purposes. And there's, you know, uh, 
you know, cultural dictionaries and, you know, all sorts of things out there. And, and, and Sekien took that idea and mashed it up with the yokai to make this kind of satire. That's what those books are. And a lot of the descriptions of the yokai aren't straight things like we would think of today, like this yokai stands this tall and does these things. A lot of them are these really oblique references to happenings in Edo, which was Tokyo, of that era. And if you don't understand those, it doesn't make any sense. So we realized that we had to put a lot of effort in annotating it, and that's what took the most time. Yeah, the annotations are all super interesting. Uh, like, there's a lot of background to just, I guess, th like, uh, I think there's one, uh, I lost the, the page now, but there was, like, a shogi board. And yes. you were like, oh, yes, well, this shogi board that you'll notice might be a reference to a time that a guy had to poop out a shogi piece yes. to prove that he wasn't... So there, there's like references to like, we, you know, we are not living in the Edo period now yes. and, you know, we don't have that cultural context. So, you know, you you guys went to, uh, I'm guessing, great lengths, unless it's just like all not knowledge just in your head. You're like, I know all this stuff. But oh, it uh, took years. God. I, that's what I, I was like, man, like translating is one thing. But then you have to like, oh, let's unpack all the cultural and historical context of everything in these pictures. Well, there's so many steps involved in that book. The first one is it's written in a, in a, in a, in a handwritten script called Kusushi Moji, which mm. is kind of like shorthand, uh, Japanese shorthand that isn't used anymore, where you're actually kind of almost annotating. It's, it was very popular uh, for use in, in doing the text on woodblocks and things like that. And if you, I don't know if you've studied Japanese before, even if you can read hiragana and katakana and, and some kanji, mm -hmm. kusushiji, mm -hmm. look at an old woodblock print, it almost looks like gibberish. Right. It's, it's really tough to make out, and it's tough to make out for modern Japanese people too. So getting, first deciphering that into a readable font, so to speak, was the first hurdle. And thank God there are a lot of guides out there uh, to reading Kasushiji, and there's also a lot of modern Japanese annotations, uh, excuse me, modern Japanese transcriptions of Sekien stuff. So we were helped a lot by having those kind of resources. Wow. So is Kusujiji? Kusushiji. Kusushiji. Like crushed. Like crushed characters are squashed. Oh, I see. So it, it's literally shorthand. It's not even like the full words. You have to kind of. Yeah, no, I mean, like, they'll use, they'll use kanji to, like, represent other hiragana and katakana and things like that, or use, like, these squiggles to that, and it has to be read in context to realize what, you know, what certain characters mean. It's, it's a fascinating field in and of itself, the kusushiji. Is this, really like, fascinating stuff. is it a step beyond, like, hentai-gana, like... It is like that. It's similar to that. It's similar to that kind of thing. But this is it is the definitive way of writing text on woodblock prints back in the uh, in the Edo era. Wow. And actually writing any the text in many books is written that way, too. It's just that was the if you want to call it font that you wrote in back then. And was this your first time translating something this old? I mean, I know that you've yes. done lots of games and manga and stuff like that, but something that's hundreds of years old. Yes. I mean, Hiroko and I have been translating games since even before we founded All Japan. I mean, the first game we worked on, uh, we worked on a couple games for a company called Working Designs, Silhouette Mirage, and another one called Lunar Silver Star Story. Oh, yeah. Lunar. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Great games. We worked on those in the late 90s. So we've been doing this for like close to 20 years now. And we wanted to see how much we could apply the techniques that we had developed for localizing modern entertainment 
to something incredibly old because most of that stuff only when, when you're talking about old things, generally the only translations that ever appear are in like academic books and things like that. They're very straight. They're, they're not very fun to read. But this book was designed to be fun. Sekien's books are entertainment. They're not really encyclopedias. Um, and it's kind of ironic that they're taken that way today because they were really meant to entertain and, and amuse. So we wanted to translate his books in the spirit in which they were written and make them just as amusing to read now as they were for people back then. Um, whether we succeeded or not is, of course, up for a debate and for the people who read it, how funny they find it or how amusing they find it. But we really endeavored to keep it close to the source, accurate, faithful, while still making it fun to read. So that was kind of a culmination of all the years of, of work that we put into localization and translation and working with Japanese entertainment. Sounds like you're you're doing your localiza localization on like hard mode or challenge mode. Yeah, no, literally. I mean, if you want to look at it as a game like that, I mean, when we when I first suggested this, Hiroko was like, "You're out of your mind, man." And mm -hmm. I I admit that I was like, "Man, we can do this, no problem." You know, I, not. Sometimes not knowing how difficult or challenging something is going to be makes it easier to take on that challenge, if you know yeah. what I mean. Let's you take that first step and at least get started. Exactly. And like about just even a couple months into it, I was like, oh, my God, man, this is really, really tough stuff. I mean, it would take us sometimes a week to do a single entry. And then we would go back again and again. And then we'd have other people come in and look at it. And then we'd have, you know, people... Uh, more people come in and look at it, and then you'd have to adjust it again when it went on the page. So it, it was it was a very, um, in the game industry, you talk about iteration. There's like very little, there's very few times when something is just, you do it, bam, it's done. Mm -hmm. You do something, and then you refine it, and then you refine it, and then you refine it. That process of iteration happens in video games. It happens in almost every kind of art or any kind of work, but it was really the case here. I mean... We must have touched each one of those, the complicated entries, I mean, 500 times. I don't know. So many times I've lost, wow. you know, constantly changing, adjusting, fixing. Oh, wow. Wait a second. Hiroko found, like, she realized that this, that this candle in the corner of this image probably refers to this. Oh, now we have to reinterpret the entire thing. And Hiroko was really, I mean, I couldn't have done this alone. I mean, Hiroko couldn't have done it alone. But Hiroko was like, she really took the forefront in it and interpreting the imagery. Like, oh, this tree is this kind of tree. And in Japanese culture, you know, this bush has this kind of connotation or this kind of, oh, we use this at funerals. Oh, we use this at a, in a Buddhist ceremony. Oh, you know, like that kind of thing. And so it was this, you know, and sometimes I would have the insight, but it's it mostly when it came to the image, uh, you know, translating is one thing, but interpreting it's another. Yeah. And uh, it was just really a huge team effort all around. Yeah, and those were some of the things that I thought were were super interesting as I was looking through the book. Were just all the the different cultural pieces, you know, like the trees or the bushes. That to me, I'm just like, oh, cool. There's some trees in this picture. Um, you yeah. know, I, I don't know what the tree, what types of trees they are, but you know, knowing yes. what they are, what the significance significance is, is is really cool. Well, Hiroko was just always, I'd be like, come on, we're done, let's move on. She's like, no, you know, he didn't just draw these things for the heck of it. Every single aspect, every single element has some meaning, and until we understand what that meaning is, you know, we shall not turn this in, we shall not let this pass. So there was that kind of back and forth too, but um, yeah, it's it's it's. To me, the most interesting thing about Japan Demonium Illustrated is it shows you just how sophisticated 
Japanese people's sense of humor was back then, you know? They're funny books. They're really funny to read, and, and the, the satire in there, it's almost like New Yorker cartoons or something like that. Yeah, there's lots of lots of levels, lots of depth to the humor. Well, it made me realize, you know, I'm sure 300 years from now, people are going to be analyzing all of our Facebook posts and tweets and things like that. And, like, when you tweet something, you don't put a huge amount of context in there, but everybody understands what it is because it's meant to be read in the spirit of something that was posted now, you know? So if somebody's going to have to reconstruct what we were talking about when you were referring to like a Pico Taro video or like a, you know what I mean? Or anything we talked about. And that was kind of humbling in a certain sense of how quickly the things that we think are so comprehensible aren't when just a little bit of context is removed. Right. Yeah. And that, that that's true even for, you know, when you go over to another country like when I first yeah. went to Japan, I'm like, oh, Japanese comedy. Like I didn't get it. And I'm yeah. like, oh, I guess Japanese comedy is just not that funny. But the more I learned about Japan, the more Japanese I learned. I was like, oh, I just didn't yeah. know anything at yeah. that point. Yeah, definitely. Well, or the crazy thing is, it's like, you know, 240 years ago in the scheme of things is not that long ago. Yeah. I mean, it is a long time for us, but that Japanese language has changed this much in 240 years. That like a modern Japanese person probably would have a very difficult time reading and certainly wouldn't get any of the obscure Edo references off the, off the cuff reading it. Just goes to show you how quickly human language changes. You know, what, what, what are podcasts going to sound like 500 years ago? I don't know, like 500 years from now, like a bunch of beeping? I don't know. It's like, you know, where's, where is language going? And that was a really interesting aspect of the project too. Yeah. I mean, who knows? 500 years from now, people might be listening to this podcast and analyzing everything that we're saying exactly exactly you know and what's good it's, it happened to him it could happen to us so i, I was wondering about uh, how long it took to do this because you're talking about each entry you maybe touched 500 times and it just came out now yes uh, when when did you start the, the initial project was pitched about i want to say three and a half three years ago Three, three to three and a half years ago. Oh wow! I thought you were gonna say like mm, about fifteen years ago. We no, this. no, no. And like we later, we later found out after the. I'll get back to that answering that question in a second. But we later found out when the book came out that we had there are a lot of academics that have been working on their own translations of this for years and years and years. Wow! And that you know we kind of leapfrogged them by doing it as quickly as we did. Um, we pitched it about three and a half years ago. It took about six months of back and forth to get it hammered out how we were going to do it and then the the actual translation took place over the course of a solid year a year and a half i would say while we were you know and it wasn't our full-time job you know when you when you do translations like this when you write books it's very difficult to make a living off of it. I mean, unless you're Stephen King and you get some kind of, you know, multi-million dollar advance, most authors don't get that. Most translators don't get that. So for us, this was a kind of really fun and energizing side project that we did on the side of our quote unquote real job, which is localizing video games and, and translating comic books and doing that kind of stuff. So over the course of a year, year and a half, we translated it. And then we, we brought in a, a third person, uh, Matt Trevode, excellent uh master he's based here in japan master of, of ancient japanese uh and he was a huge help in helping us decipher problem spots that we were having a hard time understanding uh and then the layout process 
took a huge amount of time just because it's a very complicated book to lay out. And we had to make the very difficult decision to lay it out in reverse of a normal English book, which uh, I, I think it makes it a little bit more difficult to read the English introduction, but mm -hmm. it preserves exactly how Sekian's book was. And we made the choice, you know, hey, this is Sekian's book, it's not ours. So anything we can do to make his stuff more readable and easier to understand uh, is, is a, is a no-brainer. So we laid the book out in the opposite of English uh, book style to match how a Japanese book is because there was no way that we could flip-flop his imagery or move it around. You know, those books are how they are. So it was just uh, uh, choices like that. There's a lot of discussion over them and how we're going to lay it out and where things are going to go on the page and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, three and a half years from start to finish. Wow. That actually sounds really quick. I know it sounds... I'm sure yeah. to you it didn't feel very quick, but uh, just... No, no, God. Yeah, it was rough. It was, uh, it was, there were times I didn't even know, you know, God, is this ever really going to come out? But, uh, you know, Hiroko and I, that's the great thing about working in a team is that you can both kind of buck each other up, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, when it going rough. Yeah, that, that's what I wanted to ask, actually. Was there any time in this process? Because, you know, this isn't, I mean, you did get paid for it, of course, because you made the book, but, yeah, sure. um, sure. but it wasn't like, you know, oh, I've got this project from a client. I got to do this. Like, was there ever a point where, you know, you started the journey because you're like, oh, this won't be that bad. And then once you got to the middle of it, you're like, oh, my God, it's so hard. Was there any point that you were like, I don't know if this can be done? Oh, yeah. Like that? yeah. Well, you know, on any big project, you're going to have these kind of highs and lows. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly I was I will say this. We never were like, we're giving up. This is it. We're packing it in. Never. I mean, we, we saw it as a duty to get this translated in English and like. When things, when, when we hit a difficult part, we'd be like, well, I guess this means we need to power up, you know, to get through this. Um, that said, you know, we, we, and I'm sure you and your listeners, you know, will have had this experience too. Your creative work versus your quote unquote real work. And like your, the stuff you do that fulfills you personally often doesn't pay you very well. Yeah. Is, but but you still have to make a living. You still have to feed yourself, right? So like there would be times where I'd be like, I just want to focus on Sekian today. All I want to do is translate and like, but we had a deadline, you know, for a, a paying client, you mm -hmm. know? And so of course we would have to do that. So balancing that off is another part of what made this project a reality. And another part of, I mean, have, running all Japan for as long as we have, Hiroko and I have experience in balancing multiple projects or running at the same time with each other. You know, we've, we've had many cases where we're doing three, even four projects at the same time sometimes, you know, overseeing aspects of one or translating another or, you know, having our fingers in all sorts of pies. So we were used to having multiple things, you know, going on at the same time. So that was never a problem. But yeah, it was stressful from time to time. <laughs> there's, there's no question about that. Yeah. Were there, were there any like, uh, I guess, any stories or any particular things that you found difficult in like one passage or, or just overall? Well, I'll tell you this. One of the, the, the there are multiple printings of Sekien's books. There there were three printings of them altogether. Um, and the the second we, we initially were working from third editions of the book, which are really degraded because the woodblock prints have been printed so many times. It's a woodblock, right? It's a physical object. This isn't like pixelated, you know, data where you can print as many times as you want. Right. It's a woodblock pressed against paper. And after 
1,000 times or 1,500 or 2,000 times, it starts to degrade. So most of the copies of Sekien's books are known from a mid-1800s, we think, nobody knows exactly when it was printed, third edition of the books. The imagery that you can see on Wikipedia is all third edition. The imagery that is in most Japanese modern uh, publications of the book is third edition. And it's very blurred, and more to the point, it's missing several key introductions. Hmm. And so when we located the third edition, we located a really clean, excuse me, when we located the second edition copy in the Smithsonian Library. Oh, wow. The Smithsonian's Freer and Sacker Gallery had a pristine, like, mint condition, like, second edition copy. We couldn't believe it when we found it. And... What we also couldn't believe is that there was a there was a, a basically a long forgotten introduction to the fourth book in there. Wow! And, and you you found that like no one else had had really well, looked yeah, at there, that. There were there were mentions of it in the Japanese books, but we had never seen actual it, it printed anywhere. We'd never seen a reproduction of it anywhere, and it certainly hadn't ever been translated, and it hadn't even been transcribed before. And so we're like, oh man, this is really really hard to read. Like, and it was super handwritten. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the introduction to the fourth book. And we actually hired a group. Uh, there's a there's a company in the, in the out, that like old men out in the countryside that specialize in transcribing old Japanese into a modern font. <laughs> and we and they're basically that company thrives on like if a family finds like an old scroll in their attic or like an old you know, letter that some ancestor wrote and they discover it and they can't read it now, you can send it off to this company and they'll transcribe it, not translate it, but transcribe it into a readable font, you know, into hiragana, katakana, and kanji. Wow. And is this, is this company, I mean, I'm kind of like going off a rabbit trail now because I'm, I'm just surprised that about this company that it exists. And you said it's older guys. Are they, do they have anyone that's going to take over for them once? Uh... I don't know. It's just, it's just, we found, we found them because we're like, oh, how are we going to, you know, we were piecing it together very slowly using our, you know, primer of, of Kusushiji and stuff like that. But stumbling across this, this company was a huge boon to us and we didn't even know it existed. Mm-hmm. And so just out of pocket, we paid them and we got it and we're like, wow, this actually is a story. It's like, there's, there's actually a story to the fourth book. Nobody realized that it was the, um, the, the kind of uh, record of a dream that Sekien had had. And he describes falling asleep in his studio and going to this strange, like decrepit, uh, a kind of uh, mansion or castle and seeing all sorts of yokai inside and then suddenly being awakened. He's like, I better write this down. And so the, the fourth book actually is a narrative. It's almost like a, a real uh, modern comic book and that he's like, I met this yokai and then I met this yokai and then I met this yokai and then this one. And so that was really a huge moment for us in the sense that I don't think very many people knew that, that that book had that kind of structure to it. Certainly, I don't think many people had ever read that introduction aside from maybe professors and people like that. And, uh, you know, that's when we knew this was going to be a really special project because, you know, as a translator, bringing something that nobody has ever read before into another language is almost like climbing a Mount Everest or something, you know? Yeah. And that was a huge that was a huge thing for us. It still is now. And uh, I, I, I was just really happy that Sekien is now able to find an audience 240 years later, you know, 220 years after his death, that 
there's a chance for him to be, to make a big splash in a country that didn't even really exist when he wrote those books. The first one came out in 1776. Wow. That's when George Washington was took the oath of office. That's crazy. And so you you ended up finding so it sounds like it's kind of a wraparound story for the fourth book. Yeah. Like it something that kind of like thread put threads everything together and no one had ever found it before. Yeah, I don't think, he, well, you know, this, the, the research that we needed to do in the course of this project took us, we, we had to, we had to, you know, either physically go to or call or email museums all across the world. One in the, one of the Netherlands, there's another one we talked to Boston, you know, we're talking to the National Diet Library, we're talking to libraries and, and, and museums in Kawasaki here in Japan, trying to track down the best quality copy of the books that we could. And every time we we find another copy, you know, you just learn new things about it. I mean, it was really a, a a personal discovery as much as it was, you know, a translation job. It was kind of all consuming while we were working on it. I'm kind of curious about uh, the process that you took that you just mentioned about sourcing the copies and looking for the different copies. Um, yeah. Which copy is is in the book? Is it multiple copies or is it the one pristine one that you found? The we that that pristine copy was so great that we found at the Freer and Sackler Gallery, uh, the Smithsonian, Washington D.C. Uh, really great museums, and I recommend highly to anybody interested in not just Japanese but Asian art in general to visit them. Uh, uh, they had Sekian Sekian wrote these four yokai books, but each one is split into three subvolumes. Okay, mm-hmm. so there's twelve subvolumes altogether. Four times three equals twelve. The Smithsonian had 11. They wow. were just missing one. <laughs> and we're like, oh, what are we going to do about this? Because it would really, you know, the, the National Diet Library has a, here in Japan, has a publicly accessible copy that is online that you can see. And I can give you links to all of these things if you want to see them. But the imagery is so degraded compared to the second printing mm-hmm. that we didn't want to mix and match. So that sent us on this journey trying to find this one missing volume we eventually sourced it from uh, the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. So they had a they had a pristine copy of of the last subsection. Actually, it wasn't pristine. If you look very carefully, there's wormholes in it. But it was it's an actually a first edition copy. So that we thought that was actually really cool. That's one that again could potentially have held in his own hands. It was printed in his lifetime. So we used that for the uh, the one missing subvolume in the middle of the first book. And uh, so it's a combination. It's, it's mostly the Smithsonian Freer and Sacker Galleries uh, material with a little bit from the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. And, and when you went to like the Smithsonian, how like I'm trying to imagine like how that worked out. Do you just go to the Smithsonian and be like, hey, I'm writing a book. Can I see your really pristine copy well, yes, of old things? Yeah, yes, you can. Yes. You oh, can. wow. You, you can. They, they all every museum has a licensing department. Because, you know, their their job is to maintain art and artifacts for, you know, transmission of this information to future generations. And every museum is engaged in an educational endeavor from that standpoint. So if you come to them saying that you would like to, you know, use their imagery, there's a process for doing that. There's a, there's a, a window, if you want to call it that, that you can go through every Every museum's website will have something like that. It it, is, it helped in this case that we are actually friends with the curator of uh, of the Freer and Sacro Gallery, uh, a man named uh, Jim Ulak, really great guy who we've been friends with for years. And so, you know, but even 
even though we're friends with him, we still had to go through the same process. You know, we had to we had to file a, a, a prospectus, you know, a report saying what we were doing. We had to explain, you know, who the publisher was. And that's another key thing. We had a contract to do this book. I don't think you can call up the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and say, hey, I'd like to, you know, a copy of this piece of art. Yeah, you can't just say, like, I'm going to self-publish my Kindle book on. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. then you have to pay. You have to pay for these things. And the payment is is on a sliding scale depending on how many copies you're printing and things like that. So there's all these negotiations and stuff. When it got to that stage, we just handed off our editor uh, at Dover Publications uh, and, this, and the Smithsonian or the Freer. And they, you know, worked out those details for themselves. They made the licensing agreement, bam, and, you know, the payment. And that's how we were able to use them in the book. But we found them. And the way we found these things is, is the way that most people find things these days. On the Internet, we're doing searches for stuff. And we would just constantly do searches. And when we found copies of, of these books in various museums, we'd either pick up the phone and call or send an email. Yeah, just, just Googling it and then going the extra step to pick up the phone. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. So I, I'm kind of interested in, well, I'm interested in all the yokai in the book, of course, because they're all sure. really cool. Um, but as you were going through, were there any that you had never seen before? Because you, you wrote a book before called Yokai Attack, uh, you yeah, and, sure. and Hiroko did. Um, so yeah. you're pretty knowledgeable about yokai, but was there anything that surprised you or was there any new favorites? There wasn't anything that surprised us because we, we these books are very well known in Japan and the imagery is is nothing new um you know even when you see a yokai portrayed for instance in like Mizuki Shigeru's Gege no Kitaro chances are that he's based it off something that he saw in Sekien so that wasn't so surprising but things like finding that introduction or reading each one of the books has an introduction and an afterward and reading those introductions and afterwards to us was something we'd never really been able to do before and and that was actually the most exciting part of the project to us because just seeing insight into the people, you know, not only Sekian, but his friends who he got to like jump in and say, hey, Sekian asked me to write this intro. This guy's crazy. He's obsessed with shape-shifting foxes. You know, like stuff like that is really funny. It's like it kind of puts you into the moment in Edo when yokai were a big boom. Like there was a fad for yokai in Edo kicked off by these books. And uh, it's so much like the fad for modern characters today that it just really made us realize the book's a time capsule. It's a time machine. If you read Pandemonium Illustrated, you literally can go back in time with your mind into Edo when all of these yokai were at least parading through the minds of people in Edo. And uh, that, to me, was the big, big thing about the book. So it feels more like in, the most exciting parts were, were the research and, and kind of getting through that, I guess, layer of history more than, more than the yokai for you. Yeah, well, no, I mean, yes, yes, definitely in the sense that since we had covered yokai before, yokai in and of themselves weren't particularly novel to us. You know, they weren't you know, like, wow, Japan has all these different monsters. You know, like that that wasn't the, the takeaway from this for us. But, um, you know, examples, for instance, of the one of the ones that I found really interesting is there's a, um, a yokai called Ozato. And he's just a blind man walking with a cane on on the street and everything else in this book is is pretty monstrous and so we're like what the heck is a, a blind dude doing walking around on the street what why is he in a yokai book like mm -hmm. is this making fun of handicapped people like what's going on here 
And then when we read the text, we realized that Ozato is that back in time in Japan, blind people were protected by the shogun and actually uh, uh, had a kind of monopoly on money lending at hmm. the time because they were protected. And it was like a, one of the businesses that they could get into. And because of that, they were like loved and hated at the same time in the sense of like, oh, this guy can bail me out of a problem. But also, you know, if you owe money to somebody and you can't pay him back, suddenly it becomes this big problem. And we realized that that, that yokai is a yokai, but it's also this kind of link to the societal phenomenon that was going on in Edo at the time of uh, these, these kind of unions of blind people lending money to people. Wow. So they were kind of like loan sharks of the day. Yeah, kind of like loan. And since they were protected by the shogun, like if you didn't pay them back, like the shogun's agents would come and beat the living crap out of you. You know, it was a, it was a racket for them. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And I was like, wow, I had no idea about this. I had no idea that this was going on in Edo at the time. And that yokai also shows you that this book isn't really about demonology at all. It's really about social satire and things that are going on in, in Edo culture and Edo society at the time. So for me, you know, like I love yokai, like the kappa, you know, like that, like we were talking about that, that water goblin or, you know, Nure Onna, the woman uh, looks like a giant serpent with a woman's head or, you know, there's so many of them out there. They're so great. I love these kinds of, uh, you know, Umibozu, the giant, you know, yokai that rises up out of the sea or, you know, Yanari, the kind of yokai that make this creaking sounds in your house late at night. I love those monstrous ones, but the ones that illuminate some aspect of Japanese society 240 years ago, that's like, I mean, that's, that's a treasure. That's like a, a buried hidden treasure. And that's the stuff that I really like the best out of the book. That's really cool. And uh, so I want to let people know where they can find you and where they can find your book. So your book is on Amazon because that's where yes. we got our copy. Um, yes. Booksellers, too, I'm assuming. Oh, yes. If there are brick and mortar booksellers still around, I think there might well, be one. Well, you can certainly order it. You can even if you're even if you're Barnes and Noble, do those still exist? Uh, maybe one or two is around. If, if you're brick, you know, or, or even better, your local you know, non-chain bookseller. They can absolutely order it. It's it's published by Dover Publications uh, in New York, and it's available on Amazon, all the usual places, Kinokunias, you know, uh, museum gift shops, a lot of places like that. So it's widely available. Um, ask for it by name, Japan Demonium Illustrated. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool book. Um, I've been looking through it the past week. Uh, it's it, it they are really great uh, scans um, of of that second edition that you found. Oh, yeah. I mean, all the pictures are really clear. Yeah. And uh, for me, my favorite part were the annotations, like the things that, like you said, sort of illuminated something about the culture or the history. Yes. Um, so, yes, very, very cool book. I highly recommend it. Um, and if you guys want to get in touch with Matt Alt on Twitter, you are at underscore, or at Matt, Matt underscore Alt. Yes. So Matt Alt's name with an underscore in the middle. And also check out Alt Japan. Uh, what, what is the website? Is it altjapan.com? Uh, it's altjapan.com. And also I would uh, suggest there is a Yokai Attack Facebook group. Oh, really? It's growing, yes. So by all means, if you're on Facebook, uh, just do a search for Yokai Attack and you'll see that there is a group with several thousand members going nuts about Yokai. Yes. All the time. And for those of you who don't know, Yokai Attack is the book that Matt and Hiroko did. Um, a couple years back, also about yokai. Um, there's also Yurei Attack and Ninja Attack. Yes. 
Yes, there yeah. is. Which we yeah, have. The, the trilogy. Yes, we have all three of those in the office. Oh, um, yeah. Great. Yeah. So I was looking through those this week also. Um, yeah, those are nice to do. Yeah. So thank you, Matt, for coming on the show. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. I, you know, I know this is a little bit more academic probably than we were both expecting, but uh, I hope uh, uh, you had as good a time as I did. Oh, I certainly did. And academia to me is is just as exciting as a big monster with a snake for a body. <laughs> well put. Cool. Well, thank you again. Thank you. And goodbye, everyone from the podcast. <laughs>